The ultimate argument, and this is something that we all need to learn, and as you wrestle with this and think about it, you'll figure out some ways of putting it in your own words in a way that comes more naturally to you. Um, but the argument that we all have to learn when we are defending Christianity is an ultimate argument that comes down to one point or one concept, really. Which is that our God, the Christian God, is a personal absolute. And only a personal absolute can provide a basis for knowledge and rationality. All those other things, morals, logic, uh, uniformity of nature, those things can only make sense in a universe where there is a personal absolute. And so that's the concept we're going to try to get people to, to grasp. And that only the Christian God is a personal absolute. And that's why Christianity is not just the most likely among the options, the way some of the other apologetic approaches say, but that's why Christianity is the only one that can be true. It's the only one that provides a basis for uh, what we experience and, and what we uh, encounter in this world. So first is the absolute. God is transcendent. God is absolute. Um, what does that mean? What, what do I mean by absolute and transcendent? Because this will help with sort of putting it in your own words. You, you may be talking to somebody who's not ready for the word transcendence or isn't familiar with that. And that's okay. What do we mean when we describe God as absolute and transcendent? More than, yes, and more. Um, okay. Eternal. Okay. ground for everything else. Yeah. Yeah, all reality is grounded in him. These are all good. This is why I mean it, it's not you can't just define transcendent in one word. <laughs> the one word that defines transcendent is transcendent. Right? That's why it's a word. Um, so yes. Yes, uh, I- I- eternal, authoritative, powerful, knowing, infinite, holy, self-existence, the ground of all reality, true, absolute. That's what we mean by absolute. That's what we mean by transcendent. God is utterly apart from everything we are. Take all the things that we are. I am finite. What is God? I know some things. What does God know? Take all the things that I am, and God is the other. (laughs) He's not just more. It's more to the point of being the opposite. It's, It's not like being infinite is a little more finitude. Being infinite is unrelated to finitude. It is just utterly different and transcendent. Um, And so I am a creature. I am a created thing. A absolute God is whatever the opposite of that is. He's not a creature. He's not created. Uh, 
So whatever you have to use in your own thinking or to help others, that's a really critical concept. That there has to be an absolute ultimate. Uh, in order for anything to make sense, but there also has to be a personal ultimate. Um, what do we mean by God is personal? What's the what's the philosophical term we use? There's transcendence, and there's and the other word eminence. God is imminent. What does that mean? If you say an event is imminent, what does that mean? It's right next to you. It's right next to you. So if we say God is imminent, God's imminence, we're saying he is right next to you, with us, very close to us. He's personal. He relates to his people. Is the God of deism the the clockmaker who made a clock and wound it up and stepped away never to interact again? Is that a personal absolute? No, that is an Im- so that is an absolute, but it's an impersonal absolute. And uh, the, syst- the only system, and we'll talk about why this is in just a few minutes, I'll defend this claim, but the only system that can actually account for reality as we know it is a system that has a personal absolute. Um, and then what becomes really cool about Christianity when you get down the path and you're talking about Christianity is that when you start to explain uh, what God did in history, you could be no more eminent than the Christian God was with his people. Even just the Old Testament system is a kind of eminence. He's with his people. He dwells with them in spirit and they approach him. But taking on human flesh and dwelling among them is the pinnacle of eminence. And so God is both absolute and personal. Non-Christian systems have a God. When I describe God, I mean an ultimate, I'm going to say being. They would quibble over the word being, but they're quibbling. All systems have an ultimate being. There's something at the top of everything. The question is, if it's not a personal absolute, How can it account for reality as we know it? Some religions, lots of religions, have an absolute. We talked about deism. The deistic system is that way. Many Eastern religions are that way. Now, they don't say that the the ultimate is a person, but they um, they have forces, animism, or New Age mysticism, or Hinduism, or pantheism, all of those Eastern religious views have an ultimate, all views do, and their ultimate is even absolute, but their ultimate is impersonal, and that doesn't work. Some other systems have an ultimate that is personal, but not absolute, What's the most famous one of those? It's old, not new. We all studied it in school. You know all their names. All the constellations are named after them. Greek mythology. Greek mythology, their ultimates are deeply personal. You know their names. You know their personalities. They have particular characteristics. Are any of them absolute? Nope. Even Zeus is not unassailable. There there is no true absolute. Um, polytheism is this way Mormonism Mormonism ultimately has a personal ultimate 
but not an absolute ultimate because it's polytheistic. There are multiple gods. Um, There's no absolute transcendent status for any of the gods. Um, Christianity stands all by itself with this balance between God's transcendence, his absolute, and God's eminence, his personality. Um, The religions that come the closest are, of course, Judaism and Islam. They come the closest. Um, But even Judaism doesn't work. It's an incomplete system. Judaism can't take away the New Testament, take the entire Old Testament, and give me a basis for X, what you can't. You actually need Christ. And it turns out, since the whole thing was pointing to Christ, that makes a lot of sense. Since Christ is the supreme, ultimate revelation, God's self-revelation, and the Bible, the Old Testament is a shadow, a true, useful, helpful revelation, but not ultimate, not complete, not full, not comprehensive the way Jesus was, it makes perfect sense that... that, um, that Judaism would come up a little bit short. Islam comes close to, um, they solve the Judaism problem by sort of filling in the gaps that Judaism lacks without Christianity. The problem is that Islam doesn't do it coherently. Uh, the, the God of Islam doesn't act personally in a way that's coherent with his absoluteness. So if you think about uh, our, the, the tension that the Bible gives Christians to reconcile God's sovereignty with personal freedom and responsibility. And the Bible teaches both of those things. And w- we see ways that they are both held true. And we also struggle sometimes with, yeah, but once you get like high up in thinking, how could that be? Uh, Islam has that problem five million times over <laughs> with ones that just can't be reconciled. Because when we struggle to reconcile God's sovereignty and human freedom, what we are wrestling with is how we want life to be. It seems like God's absoluteness interferes with our preference for how we would want to live and think about our own freedom. In Islam, just within the Quran, uh, Allah acts completely inconsistently with his own nature all throughout. So he will act in ways that deny or subvert what are supposedly his own attributes. So whereas we say uh, God cannot lie, and we know that if God actually did lie, he'd be undone. He wouldn't be God. Islam doesn't have that problem. Uh, Allah can say one thing and do another. He can say he is another thing and do something else when he actually interacts with his people. So even though Islam tries to do both, personal and absolute, it does it incoherently and just really uh, is filled with contradictions once you get into the Quran. Um, I mean, take the easiest one. Allah is all holy the same way Yahweh is, according to the holy books, right? How does an all-holy God interact with sinful people in Christianity? Do we have an answer for that? How in the world can an all-holy God accept sinful people like us into his presence? Like an hour from now. Right. Substitutionary atonement. How does an all-holy Allah allow sinful people into his presence? Not a problem. This is not a problem. 
But it actually is a problem if Allah were actually holy the way Yahweh is holy. Right? And so that's just one example among many in Islam where he does not act consistently with his supposedly divine attributes. Um, so as a personal absolute, the Christian God can account for all those things that when we made the negative argument, we said atheism can't account for. The laws of logic. Why do the laws of logic make sense in Christianity? Well, Because they reflect the nature of a rational God. God cannot lie. God cannot be inconsistent with himself. God can guarantee that these things will always work because he is an absolute. There's nothing outside of him, outside of his control or will. Um, That also means that we are obligated to obey them all because failure to obey what reflects the nature of God and what God orchestrates for his universe just brings about a completely destructive universe, which, oh, by the way, Genesis 3, we saw, huh, story checks out, right? You, you have to live in the universe God made according to the way God made the universe because he's absolute. And it's not like we could come up with a better plan than God did. Hey, I know you made it for this, but we used it this other way and it turned out great. That's actually what Genesis 3 was about, was Adam and Eve thinking, we can use this world better than the way you told us to use it. Didn't go so well. Can't. God is absolute. Um, Uniformity of nature. God upholds the way nature functions. And in fact, after the flood, God promises that he will uh, maintain and uphold that uniformity, that regularity of nature. He promises us that until he destroys this world in fire to give us a new, a new city and a new, a new earth, um, that we can expect the world to function the way it did the day before and the day before and the day before. That's how he set it up. He's absolute. The only reason that it would ever not act that way is if God supernaturally intervened directly to change something about it. And we have a promise in Genesis 6 and following that he won't do that again. So Christianity can answer the uniformity of nature. Moral absolutes. Those views could not explain moral absolutes. It's all just subjective. But that's not even our experience that morality is subjective. Our experience is there's at least a few things that we all end up agreeing on as being right or wrong, even if it's as simple as should scientists report their findings honestly. The, The most ardent atheist feels very strongly that scientists are obligated to report their findings honestly. Why? Why would it be wrong to do otherwise? On what basis? So we all have this experience of moral absolutes, and only Christianity can account for moral absolutes because both. God is personal. He has told us what is good. He's revealed himself, and he's absolute. His, the fact that there's nothing outside of him guarantees that that will be true in all places and at all times, whether or not the people in those places and times regard him as God. Um, right and wrong itself is a reflection of his own nature as the absolute. But he goes further than that and actually reveals it to us. That's why uh, it ties in with the sermon well this morning. You've got to think about the whole Old Testament as God's self-revelation. God revealing himself. And Hebrews 1 says God had revealed himself in a lot of diverse ways. 
He revealed himself through a burning bush. He revealed himself through walking in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. He revealed himself through giving Moses the law. He revealed himself through this crazy ceremony with Abraham where animals get cut in half and some fire and right. God has revealed himself and then he reveals himself through the prophets and the prophets get these visions or the prophets are given these words to speak and we get the book of Micah and books like that. All of it is God revealing himself. And then in Jesus Christ, what we're told is we have the complete self-revelation of God. We tend to think about what God is actually revealing is the plan of salvation. How can we be saved? Because that's what's most important to us. How can we be saved? And the plan of salvation, not like good news, <laughs> literally good news. But that is not the center of the bullseye and what God's revealing. The center of the bullseye and what God's revealing is himself. And as he reveals himself, then we say, oh, what what are we going to do to be with his self? Because we got the sin problem and he's got this holiness. And you remember that scene in Isaiah and the year King Uzziah died and Isaiah saw just, what did he see? He saw the the last two inches of the hem of God's uh, royal robe. (laughs) And seeing the holiness of the last two inches of the hem of God's royal robe, Isaiah says, I'm out. (laughs) I'm done. I'm going to get burned up just because I'm here. And it's very clear that when God reveals himself and you see God for who he really is, our first response is, I shouldn't be here. (laughs) This is not good for me. Um, So it's all self-revelation. And it's really important that we explain reality. Back to the presuppositionalist thing. We're going to use all types of arguments. We're going to use evidences and we're going to use logic and philosophical. We're going to use all of that. But what we're trying to get to in the end is that God is the personal ultimate. And so everything is his self-revelation. And that's why there's nothing else we can point to and say that proves God. We can say the fact that that is how it is is consistent with a world in which the Christian God is the personal absolute. That that evidence works, but we don't want to do the opposite and say, because I got all this evidence, all right, God, we've decided yes. That's not what we're after. Because it it undoes our argument even when we begin. Um, The fact that God is absolute allows him to uphold the world as he made it. The uniformity of nature, the laws of logic, moral absolutes, all of that can be upheld in all times and in all places, regardless of whether people acknowledge him as God, because he is absolute. And the fact that he is personal allows the ethical component, the fact that it is a reflection of who he is, that right is right, because that's how God is. And if God were something else, right would be something else. Um, It's not a subjective moral right and wrong any more than the laws of logic are subjective they both reflect the nature of God in the world that he's made and so the fact that we can know things the fact that we can be rational the fact that we can have meaningful conversations the fact that we can express propositions and evaluate them and make sense of them the fact that we can engage in science and discovery and learn things and experiment and prove things all of that is because God is the personal absolute. And that's the point. Whatever words become most comfortable for you, whatever your way of describing all that I just said in 15 minutes, that is the crux of your positive argument. Is 
whatever someone's worldview is, if it's not Christian, they can't account for reality as even they experience it. And in the negative argument, you're showing them that their experience and their worldview don't line up. And in the positive argument, you're showing them that the Christian worldview can rationally explain their experience. That's what you're doing. Uh, Questions about that, and then I'll move to proximate and existential, which are shorter. Okay. We're having a good time, right? As long as you don't lose sight of the ultimate argument, not only are you allowed to use proximate and existential arguments, you're a dummy if you don't. So remember, proximate are the evidences from the external world. Proximate arguments are the things that we Uh, the things that we would call the facts around us, the facts of history, the facts of science. Those are proximate arguments. Even philosophy, logic, and math fit into proximate arguments. So all of the philosophical arguments, um, I'll use one as an example. I don't want to do all of these because I don't find this to be fun at all. Um, But you all know arguments for the existence of God philosophically, there's a bunch of buckets of these. Um, There's cosmological arguments, ontological, teleological. There's this whole, for 3,000 years, philosophers have been coming up with these arguments or proofs for the existence of God. This is the category where we're allowed to use them. Um, Because we've already established that the ultimate argument is in fact ultimate. Um, so cosmological argument. We'll just take this one as an example. Uh, the argument's pretty simple. Whatever begins to exist, uh, premise one, whatever begins has a cause. Right? Pretty straightforward proposition. Whatever begins to exist, Something caused it to exist. Point two, the universe began to exist. The universe is not eternal. It began to exist. So point three will be what? The universe has a cause. That's an ontological argument. Every effect has a cause. The universe is an effect. If you think the universe is a cause, then the universe is your God. And we've got some problems going up the chain philosophically to figure out how you got there. But (laughs) whatever begins has a cause. The universe began, therefore it has a cause. Because you can't have an infinite regress of causes, right? Well, no, you know what caused the Earth was the space gas. Okay, what caused the space gas? Well, the microscopic space dust. Okay, what caused the microscopic space dust? At some point, you're going to have to answer the question of the very first thing that was caused, who caused it, what caused it. You can push that argument as far up the chain as you want, but ultimately you have to deal with a cosmological argument of an uncreated cause. 
cosmological arguments work because they're logically true. They also work because they have scientific confirmation. So if you're talking to someone who is, and, and let me make one just side point here. Um, there are all kinds of people in the world who need to have faith conversations with uh, sincere Bible-believing Christians. You will not be equally equipped to have that conversation with every single person in the world, regardless of where they're coming from and what their experience is. So if you enjoy science, then dig into some of these science arguments and know that that's something you've got in your back pocket for when you're talking to scientists or people who are really into science. That's something where God's gifted you and equipped you to do a particularly good job. If that's not your thing, don't do that. Pick some of the other arguments. You know, you'll still have the conversations with whoever offers, but don't try to get into cosmological arguments with somebody with a PhD in philosophy if the only time you ever saw a cosmological argument was when Paul wrote on the board in Sunday school. <laughs> That's not where you want to be. <laughs> um, but this is my field, so I will talk about this a little bit. Second law of thermodynamics testifies that this is true. Uh, the universe is growing more and more disorderly over time not more and more orderly over time. The universe is moving towards destruction. The, 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 the universe is, is, is breaking out. Um, as It's unwinding is the term a lot of people use. The universe, scientifically, is unwinding. Now, it's at an insanely slow pace in the realm of a human life, right? But the direction matters, not that it's coming together, more order and organization, but that it's breaking apart. So if that's been the direction of the universe since it was created, what? How? It's not like you could have space gas that was becoming more orderly and turned into planets. You actually have the opposite. Planets that are devolving towards space gas. Um, the universe looks like it was wound up and is unwinding. Not like it's been here forever in a bunch of disparate parts and is gradually coming together. Um, the expansion of the universe. Um, an eternal universe that expanded would implode upon itself. I mean, just, there's all sorts of scientific evidence that supports cosmological arguments. Now, they're not perfect arguments. That's why people have been arguing about them for 3,000 years. I'm not saying this solves all the problems. I'm just giving an example of this is where in the discussion those types of arguments come. And if you do get some agreement on the cosmological argument, the rational conclusion is that the universe has a cause. <laughs> the cause has to be both self-existent, can't be created, otherwise we just went back up the chain another level. So at some point there is an ultimate, uncreated, eternal, self-existent cause. The cause has to be bigger than the effect. Whatever made the universe can't be smaller than the universe. It's got to be bigger than the universe. Um, and in fact, the cause has to be personal. Um, and if it's not, then the effect would have to be as eternal as the cause. All right, this is a little bit tricky, but I'll try this in two sentences. Some of you will get it, and some of you will never have, pretend you never heard this. But <laughs> this is actually a really neat argument that... that um, to get you from cosmology to a personal God. The creator, this eternal, uncaused cause, in order to create the universe, which this argument has, so far, we've already accepted the two things I just said. 
if we buy this argument, then we've accepted the two things I just said. That whatever was, was before, whatever was not. Which means whatever was, decided to make what was not. Nothing impersonal can decide to do anything. The very concept of choosing to make whatever God was eternal made a world that is not eternal. The decision to make the world that was not eternal is by definition a personal decision. The world has to have a personal absolute. So again, that's cosmological. I don't want you all to get deep into that stuff. I just want you to understand there's a place for all of these arguments. And uh, when we talk about... uh, um, We could talk about historical arguments in exactly the same place. If your thing is you really like the evidences from history, it really resonates with you to to see all the proof from these historians, Christian and non-Christian, and a defense of the authenticity of the New Testament and why that can be trusted. There's great books on that. And so that's where you go read some of those books. You go read Josh McDowell's A Case for Christ. You go read uh, Michael Kruger, uh, whatever that guy's name is. It's not Kruger. It's the guy that worked with him. On, uh, on the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts and why the Bible, uh, it's reasonable to be believed. W- whatever jives with you in this realm of, of proximate arguments, go study some and figure out what's the area where I get into a discussion. I don't have to be an expert on everything, but when somebody makes the accusation, you don't have any rational basis for that. Not only can you make the argument from an ultimate perspective, but you can choose one train of thought from approximate perspective and go down that a little bit and at least show them, no, no, this is carefully considered. This is well thought out. This is, this is not just uh, what they told me to think. Um... Uh, I'm looking over the last of my cosmological argument notes, which I don't even understand. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what's fun about these arguments is the objection that you'll get a lot of times from unbelievers um, is that um, if everything that exists has a cause, then the cause of the universe must have a cause. So they're saying you haven't solved the problem because God has to be caused too. Because everything that begins has a cause. And you have said, well, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm not saying everything that is has a cause. I'm saying everything that begins has a cause. And at some point, they have to accept that too. It's just a question of what is the is that was before the was made anything that is. See why you don't go into philosophy? Um, have you won this argument? Nobody wins in cosmological arguments. Everybody loses for having them. Um, Yes, I have. Yeah, the 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 biggest positive I've had with those discussions is to get people to admit that their worldview has to account for that first unmoved mover, that first is, the uncreated thing. And what they'll say at first is, well, no, I don't have to account for that because we just don't know the answer of it yet. And that's such a great moment for the Christian because we're saying, now, now wait a minute, you're calling me irrational for being a Christian, but you're admitting to me that the most important thing and the center of everyone's worldview, you're saying you don't have to have an answer for <laughs> I, I just want to make sure we're clear on that. You're saying rationality doesn't matter. 
And that's fine. I'd just rather be rational, which is why I'm a Christian. So it is sort of a fun moment if you can do it without being a jerk. Um, yeah, that session. I, that idea, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist? What? You've got to explain that first thing. And to say, no, I don't, is to say, I'm perfectly fine living in a universe that makes no sense to me, including who I am and what I do. Which is fine, but stop calling me irrational. You're literally the definition of it. But usually people are calling Christians irrational, right? And that's really the value of those sorts of arguments, is if you get somebody who's done just a little bit of thinking or normally internet blog reading about philosophical arguments, somebody who is a angrier or more militant atheist, that can be a really good point of just have a little bit of humility because everything you're saying about me is not true about me and is in fact your position. Just to bring it back to maybe one of the things we started with about presuppositionalism, like the same set of facts, Christian, not Christian, looking at them, one of them's right, one of them's wrong. And that depends on who God has like change their heart. Is that kind of the idea? Yes. Uh, with a couple steps before that of at least getting them to acknowledge that the idea of right and wrong themselves, that they think your worldview is wrong. They think these st- facts that you're stating are wrong. They have no basis on which to do that in their worldview. So at the very least, I need you to use your worldview to justify the claim that mine is wrong, or in fact that anything is wrong, or that anything can be known, right? So, yes, ultimately, if somebody's going to come to faith, it's because God has changed their heart. Part of the way God can do that in a process of changing someone's heart is through coming to these levels of understanding as you work down the arguments, and even for some people who God is not calling to faith, and, and we don't know, so we treat everybody the same, but just zooming out big picture, um, that is one of the ways that God will condemn them is that he has made himself known and for anybody that wants to there's enough evidence out there to condemn you and what should happen is a person sees that evidence and says oh I got a problem God help me deal with this problem well nobody ever says God help me deal with this problem Who got, right just real quick, uh, like in, the, in the legal world sometimes facts are disputed and other times they're agreed upon just the interpretation of them is different yep. so I think what we just talked about would be facts are agreed upon, different interpretations, but also could one make the analogy of facts themselves being like disputed? There will be facts that are disputed along the way. My recommendation is normally you try once to get them to see the truth of that facts and then you just move on to a different set of facts because where these arguments will be most successful, all of them, is when you're dealing with undisputed facts. When people just acknowledge, yeah, you know what, that is my experience. If you raped and murdered my kid, I would think that was wrong. Great, let's pick that one. Let's not take, do we agree that it's wrong to cheat on your taxes? Or, or silly example. Um, other questions? For, so for this to work, for all these proximate arguments to work, for cosmological arguments to work, uh, you have to have a Christian definition of causation. This idea that whatever begins has a cause that so many people will, of course, accept, but it's not a given It's in an immaterial, non-absolute, non-personal God universe. It's not a given. If we have disordered chaos, it's not a given. Um, And so that's why the the presuppositionalists say, you can't start there. You've got to start here. Because without this, that argument makes no sense. And without this, 
any proximate argument. Let's look at the historicity of the resurrection. Let's look at the reliability of the Gospels. None of those proximate arguments make any sense without the existence of a personal absolute. And that's why, philosophically, the presuppositionalists say you have to start there. Theologically, they say you've got to start there because it's honoring to God. He is, in fact, the personal absolute, and he deserves us to acknowledge that in our thinking all throughout the process. Um, so, yeah, this, this stuff can be helpful. Whatever proximate argument you choose, these can be valuable. Um, because to reject the Christian worldview is to reject rationality. It's to reject the facts in every area of life. From, philoso- from philosophy to science, math, music, history, all of, the, all of it is rejected, ultimately, if you reject the Christian worldview. Um, and that's true whether you're talking about a cosmological argument. Uh, y'all are familiar with teleological or arguments, order and design. You, again, this is why the terms don't matter as much. You know the argument. Something that is designed means what? There was a designer, right? There was a creator. Somebody made, When something gives evidence of order, someone imposed that order. And it makes, think again, think about naturalistic materialism, this idea that everything's just disordered chaos. So when you see something other than disordered chaos, you have, someone made it that way. The, the great illustration, um, Jake will know who, who made it. I don't trouble myself with reading books to remember names, is uh, the bowl of alphabet cereal. And that if you poured a bowl of alphabet cereal, pour your milk in, you go to pour your coffee, you come back, if you looked down in the cereal and you saw the word is, I-S, you would think, huh, that's funny. And, and if you look next to that and uh, you saw the, T-H-E, is the, you'd think, well, that's, that's pretty weird. But if you saw, is the coffee good this morning, Margaret? What would you think? Somebody organized it into that fashion. You can randomly get is. You can probably randomly get is the. You cannot randomly get is the coffee good this morning, Margaret, in the cereal. Design is evidence of a designer. Orderliness is evidence of someone's intent in putting it in order. That's teleological arguments. Um, And those come from all over. You can look at uh, astronomy. Uh, You can look at... um, Biology is very good at this. Chemistry, math, music, the orderliness of the world. This is where, if you read books like we have on the back table about science and faith, they'll talk about a concept called irreducible complexity, which is this uh, pretty simple idea that says if a mouse trap were going to evolve from a random pile of parts into a functioning mouse trap. Every single step of that evolution would have to be useful, or otherwise the thing would just stop evolving. So, what good was the piece of wood with the metal bar laying on it? (laughs) That it was then willing to evolve to now a metal bar with a spring. You see this in animals all the time. You look at biological life, where you say, oh, you know, it, it developed this ability to. Well, what did it do when it didn't have that ability? It died. (laughs) <laughs> so, right, uh, 
lots of these teleological arguments can be valuable in this category of proximate. Um, ontological arguments, stay away from. There be dragons. Your head will just... If philosophy is your thing, you should study ontological arguments. I have a degree in this and don't understand. Uh, I mean that sincerely. Um, an ontological argument is basically God is the greatest conceivable being. Imagine the most powerful, most infinite, most absolute being that you can possibly imagine. That's what has to be God, right? You, there can't be anything greater than the greatest. And God must be the greatest. God can't be second greatest. God can't say, well, I could have been omniscient, but I didn't want to be. Right? No, that wouldn't be God. So with that greatest possible being that you've imagined, which is better, a being that exists or a being that could exist but doesn't? (laughs) The existing one's better. Existence is better than non-existence. Therefore, God exists. Okay. I'm with you, Pam. Uh, that stuff yeah. you get in college. Yeah. That was the answer. As we start, everybody's doing all of that studying and thinking. Ideas and trying to, you know, they're away from their parents. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're ex- exploring dangerous ideas. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I contemplated some uh, ontological arguments at a fish concert one time when this guy gave me a bag of dried mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. My uh, my point on proximate arguments remains this: F- find something, find a field of proximate arguments that interests you. Philosophy, science, math, music, history. Find one that interests you and do some reading on that. So you do feel confident and capable in one area. And if the person that you're talking to is pushing you to another area, you're comfortable saying, you know what, that's not an area of expertise for me. I know there are some good arguments. See if you can shift them to the area that is your expertise. At the very least, you're demonstrating a willingness to engage with real ideas because nobody's going to be an expert at all of these things. Nobody. Um, And then finally, existential arguments. These are arguments from personal experience. And again, if you start with them, you failed. Because all you're leading someone to is to believe in you. I believe in God because I believe Megan's story, and I really like Megan, and Megan's great, and so I believe in God because Megan. Well, okay, you believe in Megan. (laughs) Uh, So don't start there. Ultimate arguments have to be our ultimate. But... Um, existential arguments really do matter. Your personal testimony of your experience of God in the world is a completely valid part of the argument. It's a valid part of anyone's argument for their worldview. When you ask me to believe something that utterly contradicts my experience, my experience doesn't prove that it's true, but that is a real problem. You're asking me to believe something that utterly contradicts my experience. I'd rather believe something that can explain my experience, that can account for my experience and not make me think that I'm a brain in somebody's jar on their desk. Um, your experience of God in your life has helped you live a more rational and balanced existence. 
we do want to make sure that we talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ and the, the, the experiential value of that. It's not what a lot of people are out there saying, health and wealth. It's something more important. It's something more useful, more valuable than physical health and material wealth. And this can be really important because the existential portion of an unbeliever's life is usually a wreck. They have a lot of problems and challenges that they cannot explain. And even when they are healthy and they're making a lot of money and they're getting a lot of things that they want out of the world, y'all see the studies all the time that show when they lay their head on their pillow, they're not content. They're not satisfied. They're not at peace. Just because you have all that stuff, it doesn't solve the existential crisis. And so seeing your life that can be joyful and content and peaceful despite circumstances, independent of circumstances, can be a very powerful argument. So don't, don't just take that off the table and say, my testimony doesn't matter at all. So that's the framework. Um, Negative argument, clarify and expose their worldview. Positive argument, explain and advocate for your worldview. And then do both of those using ultimate arguments, proximate evidence around us, and existential, our own experience. What we feel uh, and, and, and think as we go through life. That's it. So then what we'll do starting next week, and we won't spend a full week on each of these, is we'll just say, what does it look like to apply that one-two punch to can the Bible be believed, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the problem of evil, science and evolution?